Gresham College presents The Poor Are Always With You, A Sideways View of London by Reverend Nicholas Holton, vicar of St Martin in the Fields. One of the things that's very striking about this business of poor people in London is the way that for poorer people, mobility is not built in and we stick to our patch and uh, don't use the city as a whole. Uh, And that seems to me very striking uh, indeed. The people on the island thought I was going upmarket. Well, in a sense, they were right, weren't they? St. Martin of the Fields is the Royal Parish Church and the Parish Church of Downing Street. You don't get swankier than that in Church of England terms. Um, But actually, uh, I was going upmarket and downmarket in one swift move uh, because the connection at St. Martin's, the organisation that looks after homeless people and young people at risk who come into London, sees 7,000 people a year who are among the most vulnerable and poorest people in the country. Um, The striking thing about St Martin in the Fields is that it typifies the very best of an English parish church, I think. It's broad, open, inclusive. And I want to come back to that as a model of community, which I think might have something to say in thinking about poverty uh, in London today. Uh, I've called the talk a sideways view, Uh, of poverty and it's a sideways view of London as well actually Um, I am a parish priest I have spent quite a lot of my life sitting beside poor people I am not poor myself I can't claim that I do not know their experience as mine but I've spent quite a lot of time in communities in Stepney, the Isle of Dogs and indeed at St Martin's, alongside poor people. And there's a sense in which my view is therefore a sideways view uh, of poverty. But I've also noticed that people very rarely look a street beggar in the eye. Nearly always there's an awkwardness. Um, There's the sense of being unsettled by somebody who's begging on the streets. Um, They challenge us. We feel inadequate. We don't know what to do, really. Uh, And therefore, my hunch is that we take a sideways look at them as well. And I think that's the image that I I want to have in the back of my mind and to to put in the back of your mind through this lecture, that we find it very difficult indeed to look poverty in the face. Um, And our instincts are to be in parallel, to look sideways and not actually to deal with the person or the matter face to face. So that's a sideways view of poverty as well. To this, the Christian Gospels a daily challenge, um, and the story of St. Martin exemplifies it. Martin was a Roman soldier in the 4th century. Uh, he was uh, riding out of Amiens, city in northern France, on a cold winter's day when he saw a beggar beside the road, And he took off his cloak, cut it in half, gave half to the beggar. And that night, in a dream, the beggar returned as Christ. And the Christian can't hear that without hearing that verse from Matthew's Gospel. For as much as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Um, So the Christian expectation is of meeting Christ, particularly in the poor person. But I can't honestly say that has been my frequent experience. It has been sometimes my experience, but the daily round of difficult people is pretty grinding. Um, 
I used to have some two people call on the, at the vicarage on the Isle of Dogs. Um, uh, one used to come in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep and was feeling very restless. And uh, Claremont thought he was Jesus. And there was somebody in the congregation who also went through a phase of thinking he, he was Jesus. And um, Claremont got sectioned and was in the mental hospital in Mile End. I went up to see him and found the other chap there as well. So I introduced them to each other and left. <laughs> Actually, they became very good friends and were very helpful to each other. Maybe that's a way. Um, Austin Williams, who was uh, the longest serving of my predecessors in the 20th century, was vicar of St. Martin the Fields for, I think, 28 years, uh, left a fantastic reputation as a pastor, but he told a wonderful story against himself. He was running between the church and the vicarage, and somebody stopped him and said, Do you remember me? And Austin said, How much do you want? <laughs> and the man said, I just want to know that you remember me. Um, there's an awkwardness about it, but there's a Christian duty to listen to poor people, especially because the kingdom of God seems to be very close in them, perhaps because they are the people who have least to lose in maintaining the status quo of our society. Listening to people isn't easy. Listening to poor people isn't easy because they are curiously invisible. How do you tell if somebody's poor? Um, actually... Go out on the streets in the West End, and you might think there are a lot of street beggars, but go out with an experienced street worker in the middle of the night, and it's astonishing how many extra people you find tucked up in doorways or in places that you'd never have thought to look who've managed to make themselves invisible in the centre of London. So listening to poor people is difficult because actually there is an invisibility about poverty and there's an invisibility about poor people. Um, it's also difficult because... Poor people quite often tell things slant. Um, you, don't, you, you get this sort of funny, awkward view of things, um, and it's difficult to hear and interpret. Uh, and I think it's also difficult, um, because um, poor people quite often say it in a way, well, it's, just diffi it's difficult to hear, you, you get something rather off the wall which needs interpreting in order to make sense of it. Uh, and then um, I suppose there's a sense of um, uh, poor people are difficult to hear because, um, well, they do sometimes say things which are surprising and challenge us uh, and which those of us who are more caught up with the status quo of society find quite difficult to hear that the emperor's got no clothes on, for example. Um, work with homeless people at St. Martin's typically begins with the very basic provision of feeding, washing, clothing, providing a place of safety and warmth. So in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's pretty basic stuff. And in that context, it's possible to build relationships with people, um, to gain their confidence. Um, that's important because homelessness is never a single issue. Uh, homelessness is associated with problems of mental health, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, poverty, breakdown of relationships, patterns of abuse, uh, institutionalization. It's not a single issue. And I think that must be true of poverty in general, actually, not just of homelessness. So the process of building relationships with people in providing these very basic needs is actually a terribly important one because it's in that context that people begin to find themselves as people in relationship with others. It can be a slow process for many of the people that we're dealing with because they've been so badly damaged. 
There was a chap who used to sleep on the south side of St. Martin's for about nine months a few years ago. Every day he'd come into church when we opened up and he'd sit through morning prayer with me and whoever else was there saying morning prayer. And it took four or five months before he spoke. And the first thing that he said to me was, if you haven't spoken for a long time, you can't find the words. Now for somebody like that, it takes ages to build the confidence to get him to speak, to give him the confidence to join in with a group, to build relationships with his peers and not just with the professionals who are around. It's a very slow process. Uh, and in doing that work, um, there's sort of this large open provision of soup kitchens and the like, but the change of life stuff happens one-to-one -one and in groups, and the group work is very obviously uh, focused on particular aspects like alcohol problems, or we run a marvellous life skills group where people um, are used to budget, get to find out about budgeting, shopping, cooking, all the sorts of things that people take for granted. And if you're going to move into your own accommodation, it's very important. Um, uh, uh, but actually, what we've discovered over the last few years is the most important groups that we want run are creative groups, creative writing, music, uh, and art, I think are the, the, the three key ones, where there's been an amazing sense of people growing in esteem uh, and, and worth. Um, we held an art. We hold two art exhibitions a year, and the one at St Martin's took place a few weeks ago. So I'm going to show some work by homeless artists as a way of illustrating at least the first part uh, of this talk. It's a great mistake, I think, to think of homeless people as people in a different category to the rest of us. Um, they're people like you and me, and they're people who. Well, at least mostly they're people like you and me. There, 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 are, there are groups that you can identify, of course. Um, but there is, I think, more and more, I have a sense of there but for the grace of God go you or I. Um, things have happened generally which they have not been able to cope with, perhaps weren't well equipped to cope with, but certainly have been pretty terrible things which I often wonder whether I would be able to cope with uh, any better. This first picture... Uh, is a, a series of pictures by a chap called Thomas, who um, was uh, in church for quite a few months earlier this year. Uh, he used to work in a design studio. He won a prize and used the prize to travel the country. And these pictures are uh, five pictures of places that he remembered going to. Uh, there is a London theme, of course, in the bottom right corner, and I'm honestly not sure where the other places are. Um, but what happened to him was he had a motor accident. I can't remember if it was a motorbike, but he, he, he had some fairly dreadful accident which put him out of action for months and months and months uh, in hospital and then recovering. And during that time, he lost his job. And having lost his job, he lost his flat, and having lost his flat, he lost his girlfriend. And having lost his girlfriend, he was on the streets and found himself right at the bottom of the pile and still with a bad back and suffering a disability. I doubt that he's much more than 30. Um, uh, he's extremely able indeed. Um, I liked this little pair of pictures. Um, I'm not sure where the left-hand one is, but the right-hand is Wapping. It's the old Wapping wall, I think. Um, it's quite a nostalgic view of London. 
Um, I, have no, I know East London pretty well, and of course it's changed hugely. Um, so it seems to me that here's somebody who's got very obvious uh, skills, art, art skills, design skills. Um, there's a degree of nostalgia about it that I think you can see. There's also that sort of extroversion, the colours and so on, um, life needing to look um, uh, pretty bright, um, and he's wanting to make the best of it. Um, but I think that's an interesting set of pictures which just establishes uh, somebody who's not that different to you or me. I love this picture. Um, it's London, uh, painted by a man called William, who's in his 50s, uh, possibly early 60s. Um, he always paints in dark colours. I think that that's something about him. And at the end of one of our art classes, uh, the teachers had got a load of paint left on the palette and said to William, just do something with that. Go on, they're your sorts of colours. And just very quickly threw them across the page. Uh, and then uh, Jaime said, why don't you put in some buildings? And all of a sudden, London emerged. I think this picture took less than 10 minutes to produce. You might say, well, it looks like it. Actually, I think it's really quite skilled. Um, uh, it's um, quite dark and forbidding, London, isn't it? I mean, warm browns, I suppose, ready browns. Um, but it's sort of rather a Dickensian view of London. Um, it's often been said, hasn't it, that the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. And clergy quite like using that because it sort of gives us a nice way of talking about the city. The heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, London's such a fantastically vibrant place, isn't it? Uh, this, this isn't that sort of a city. Uh, this is a city that's let somebody down repeatedly, I think. It's got sort of the sort of um, presence that you're not sure how you're going to make your way in. Um, it feels like you're going to be stepping into one of those pea supers of my childhood. That I, you know, th th those sorts of smogs. Um, not an easy city to find your way around. Um, very difficult, I think. It was interesting talking to William um, because actually for this exhibition, his style of art had changed. Um, we've done something interesting at St. Martin's in combining some of our work with older and younger people. And I think this shows through in this picture that actually um, in, in the other pictures that William produced for the exhibition, for the first time ever, I saw that he had used some really light colours. And this is a picture of home. Uh, this was William's home. It's where he grew up. Uh, it's a memory. I have no idea if it's really like this at all. I've never been there. I think it's North Uist in the north of Scotland. Um, uh, it's very beautiful. It's quite an idyllic picture of home. And if that's where home comes from, then there's quite a longing for home, I think, that must be built into this man's life. Uh, this is paradise. Um, this is a man who's been in London for years. Um, this is paradise. If I were trying to draw, draw paradise, I don't think I'd go for a tropical island. I'm pretty sure I'd want people there. I'm pretty sure that I'd want something like, I don't know, would it be the National Gallery or or one of the great museums, or music halls, or maybe even on a good day, St. Martin in the Fields. Or uh, I, I think I'd want that sense of actually the positives of what London's about in my, my paradise. So I think it's quite interesting that the person who produced the picture of London that was so brooding and dark uh, produces the tropical island of paradise as paradise. Uh, it's a long way from that picture of London. Uh, this isn't a city that's paved with gold. Uh, it's dark, a bit dull, and it's let people down. 
uh, it's a disappointment. Uh, this uh, last picture is by Christian, who's a lot younger. Um, Christian's in his early 20s. And he told me, uh, this is what I meant by off-the-wall comments, uh, this picture is the space in London in, to build houses. I said, really? Where's the space in London to build houses? In my head, he said. But where in that picture is the space to build houses? Well, it's there, can't you see it, he said. You've only got to walk around the city to see how many offices they're building. Look, there are the, you know, all these structures being built all over the city. They don't want to build houses for the likes of me. They could do if they wanted. There's loads of space in London to build homes, but they've chosen to build offices instead. Well, that's a sideways view of London, isn't it? Um, I think that's a really interesting thing from somebody who's coming completely off the wall, who's got very little investment in the status quo who's saying, but there's loads of space in London. I don't know what's going on. Why is it in our city that there are people struggling to find any accommodation at all? We'll leave that there. So a sideways view of poor people, a sideways view of London. What about the dimensions of poverty in London? Well, I'm a preacher, of course, so let me take a step back and just think about this. Um, there's an interesting difference between the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel and the Beatitudes in Luke's Gospel. Um, in Matthew, Jesus speaks the Sermon on the Mount, but in Luke, it's the Sermon given on the plain, on the level. In Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in Luke, he says much more directly, Blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. There's a lot of interest at the moment in defining what our wealth is and not just doing it in material terms. So uh, thinking about uh, wealth and poverty, uh, not just as economic uh, things, but in terms of wealth of spirit, in poverty of spirit. So part of me would really like to explore the meaning of Matthew's being poor in spirit in London today. I don't know whether you've um, read the GLA's draft culture strategy. I know there was somebody from the GLA talking in this series earlier. Um, the GLA's draft culture strategy strikes me as poor in spirit. Uh, it is a pathetically spirituality-free zone, and I don't see that as a blessing. How can you talk about this city's cultural value, cultural wealth, uh, without thinking about matters of the spirit and spirituality explicitly. When the GLA talks about value, they're not talking about values, they're talking about value for money. There's nothing about value. Um, it's a pathetic document, I think, and one that ought to give us quite a lot of concern. Um, mind you, um, we, not just the GLA, have lost confidence in religious belief and language. And we don't know how to discriminate between good religion and bad. At best, we accept a broad and uncritical tolerance. There are many paths up the same mountain. So if that's what you believe, that's fine. As long as it doesn't hurt me or yourself, fine. It's an uncritical tolerance. Um, at worst, I think... Um, 
there's a sort of bigotry and tribalism that characterizes quite a lot of religious belief and practice uh, at the moment. Um, I suppose it could be um, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of a passionate intensity. Um, in a world where religion frequently demonstrates its capacity to be lethal, we'd do well to rediscover our ability to be critical uh, and discern the matters of the spirit. There's one modern translation of the Bible in which the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel begin, how blessed are you, who, those who know their need of God. That's much more like it to my mind. Without God, there's a poverty of spirit. The blessing is not in the emptiness but in knowing the emptiness, in recognizing it, in knowing our need of God. That's much more imp and that's much too important a task to be left to the churches, synagogues, temples, and mosques. And it's a pity that the GLA's draft cultural strategy ducked it. I actually think they've got a duty to try and help with it. But for today, we'll not go down the track of poverty of spirit. We'll stay with material poverty, because that was my brief. And it's difficult to know whether the best descriptions of statistics or stories how do we define who is poor? In the 1980s, one of the congregation on the Isle of Dogs really reacted vehemently against the Archbishop of Canterbury's Commission on Urban Priority Areas. Remember Faith in the City? Um, because we were looking at it and she was saying, well, how do they say we're poor? What are the indicators? And so we looked for the list and it included having an outside loo. Well, she said, my Tommy was disgusted when they put the loo inside the house. It was dirty. It was a horrible thing to bring into the house. Well, how you describe poverty is subjective, isn't it? Um, so government takes an objective indicator, which is to say that people are in poverty when a household has less than 60% of the national average disposable income. Why 60%? Seems to me totally subjective. It's a political decision, that. But it's trying to identify when people drop below an acceptable level uh, in terms of having an income that will purchase a type of diet, uh, participation in activities, uh, and life in conditions that are widely thought as necessary for society. And our national assumptions are that uh, London is more prosperous than the rest of the country. Certainly average national incomes in Wales, Northern Ireland, and the North East are the lowest in the country, and London comes out with the southeast at the highest. Um, the GLA have recently done some work, which was published last year, identifying that if you take into account housing costs and childcare and those sorts of things which are very high in London and which you can't avoid if you're trying to participate in society, actually London comes out at the bottom of the regional indicators. Three million people in, in, a, in a London are in households with less than 60% of the average disposable income if you take into account those things as well, uh, childcare costs and housing costs. And the range within the country is enormous. In Kensington, the average household income is £47,700 per annum. Uh, in Vauxhall, in, in Liverpool, it's £9,000 per annum. Uh, in Tower Hamlets, my old borough, 61% of households have an income less than £9,000 a year. Households, not individuals. Uh, and this affects everything. Uh, health, morbidity, uh, as well as educational achievement and the general sense of well-being. If that's not your experience, 
uh, and you want somehow to get inside it, then actually I think Polly Toynbee's book, Hard Work, Life in Low-Pay Britain, is a really interesting read. She was one, a number of, a number of, um, one of a number of well-known people who were challenged by Church Action on Poverty last year to live for the six weeks of Lent on the minimum wage of £4.10 an hour. Her experience of how, how much things cost when you lack financial ability to exercise choice and how quickly you get into debt is salutary. Or look at the adverts. I was going to say in the tabloids, but you can't say that anymore with what The Independent has done and The Times is doing. <laughs> look, in the ad look at the adverts in The Sun and The Mirror. Most days there's more than a page of adverts offering loans to anybody. Unsecured, unchecked, high interest. And then you realise what being on a low income means in terms of your inability to gain credit and finance and how much it will cost you. In a residential community in East London, on estates adjacent to the Isle of Dogs Enterprise Zone, there were households with three generations of people unemployed in them, and people whose isolation was compounded by their poverty. There was one day when I went into the primary school early in the morning, and I had already heard that a young man had been found dead on the Mudshoot Park and Farm that morning. And uh, I knew enough from what I'd heard from the police that he was a drug addict. And three sets of parents asked me in the 400 yards between my front door and the school gate if I knew who it was because it might be their son. Um, and they hadn't been able to cope with their son at home because he thieved from them to, to feed an addiction. It simply wasn't possible to keep him in the house. Seems to me that's a, there's a very striking isolation there which reinforces in a different way that sense of poverty being multiple uh, issues and also being invisible uh, because they were things that uh, I wasn't um, aware of. Um, the current advertising, by, uh, advertising campaign by Bernardo's has caused a furore, hasn't it? Uh, the first of the adverts showed a newborn baby with a cockroach crawling out of his mouth Another featured a baby with a methylated spirits bottle in its mouth. A third showed a baby with a syringe. The headline said, there are no silver spoons for children born into poverty. And if poor people in general are invisible in the places of power and wealth, it seems to me this publicity is a good thing. I rather uh, am in favor of the Bernardo's campaign. It was a campaign designed to do two things. First, the extent, of child to, the extent of child poverty in Britain today, sort of just trying to say, it's here, there's a problem. Um, Bernardo's claimed uh, that 3.9 million children uh, live in poverty, a higher figure than any other country in the European Union. I don't know the basis of the figure. I'm assuming they're using the government's uh, basis of 60% of uh, average household income to produce that figure. Um, it seems to me that the statistics are quite difficult because take them out of context and you're not quite sure what their basis is. But I think the interesting figure is that strapline, a higher proportion, a higher number than in any other country in the European Union. Uh, and, and then I think the other thing that um, Bernardo's are saying is it's really difficult to escape from poverty. There are patterns that are repeated in families, in communities. It's very difficult to get out of it. There's a trap. Of course, because the definition of poverty is relative, it's a truism that the poor will always be with us. Jesus was saying something clear there. Yet, yet as a society, we are obsessed 
with the other end of the scale. How many of us look at the Sunday Times Rich List with interest? Um, earlier in the summer, I saw uh, a vagrant lying in front of an evening standard billboard. He was wrapped up in a blanket and asleep, and I expect he was drunk. Middle of the day, and the billboard said, Chris Evans, seven million pound payout. I don't know whether it was to him or from him, because he gets into trouble, doesn't he? But just that gap of seeing a vagrant in front of that billboard. Um, there's a proper and growing concern about the gap between richest and poorest in our city and in our country. The obscene stories of footballers frittering their money away. Um, extraordinary story of an Eastern European footballer uh, burning money in front of a beggar in Berlin. I mean, what's that about? Um, didn't the radio, local radio in Birmingham do something very similar last week, burning £5,000 because somebody uh, didn't win it, or, and, and, and so they just burned it? I mean, what, what is that about? What are we doing? Um, on the Isle of Dogs in the early 1990s, some of the new private estates not only retained the sections of dot wall between the new estate and the council development next door, um, one can understand that, keeping a clear sense of boundary and identity. But they didn't just keep the wall. They added six foot of fence on the top with barbed wire at the top. I took a black South African friend of mine round and his jaw fell to the floor and said, this is economic apartheid. What are we doing in this gap between richest and poorest? The great thing about the energy that Docklands brought to the Isle of Dogs was that sort of sense of inward investment, momentum and energy. But there was a funny gap between people's perceptions. The school where I was chair of governors was given a computer for every classroom in the late 1980s. It was fantastic. The computers turned up before the LDDC realised that they needed to install an electric socket in each classroom as well, because there was only one, and they needed to have one for the uh, computer. Uh, there's a great deal of concern about city fat cats who are paid fast salaries and bonuses out of all proportion to the rest of us. Not out of proportion to the market, but it's a very rarefied market. It's out of all proportion to the rest of us. And one of the difficulties with Docklands is the juxtaposition of conspicuous wealth alongside, mostly in parallel with and not touching, looking sideways at some of the poorest estates in Britain. In Docklands, the LDDC made community development a priority. Only after five years of their existence, where all the key decisions have been put into place and where the local community have been pretty taken apart in the process. But having put the key decisions in place for the enterprise zone, all of a sudden, community development became a priority. Well, it's a good thing, but I, I thought there was trouble, really, when um, I met with a fairly senior LDDC officer just after I became vicar of the Isle of Dogs in uh, 87, and he described the Isle of Dogs as a brownfield site. Well, the trouble was there were 12,000 people living on that brownfield site, and actually some of the things that kept them going had been destroyed by the development, and at that stage not much had been put in that was for them. Talk to the people who used the lorry parks, or the sorts of industries that were around in Docklands at that stage. Um, the churches generally seem quite pleased to um, 
be asked by government to sort of step in and, and, and pick things up. But I, I do find myself concerned uh, about uh, the way in which, you know, when government discovers community development and thinks that the churches can help with it, then you know that you really are in trouble. I used, I used to visit a, an old lady in hospital uh, towards the end of her life. And every time I went, if the doctor or nurse was doing something, I'd be asked to wait. And they'd sort of fiddle about for hours with poor old Vi. And then there was one day I turned up and they said, and I knew that was the day she was going to die. And that was the day you let the clergy in because you couldn't do any more for her. And I sort of I worry about that in relation to the way government's discovering um, that religion can help with community because community must be in a pretty bad way. Um, on the other hand, churches are communities of people committed to, well, Jesus' summary of the law, the love of God and the love of neighbour. So actually churches have got something, I think, that's quite distinctive to offer in this business of community development. And there may be a model here which is quite helpful. Um, at their best, churches are inclusive communities where people meet across social boundaries. One of my most memorable days at St. Martin the Fields was seven years ago. And um, it started with me walking two of our children to school in Soho. They were aged, I think, nine and seven at the time. And as we walked through Leicester Square, one of the drunks sitting in the square said, Fuck off, vicar! <laughs> the children either side. Um, I came home, got on my bike, and cycled up to the Euston Road and uh, met with a nun, a Roman Catholic nun, and a rabbi at the Council of Christians and Jews. And then I cycled down to the Dorchester Hotel, uh, and they didn't know what to do with my bike. That was quite interesting to discover. Um, uh, and... Um, St. Martin's is next door to the South Africa High Commission, and I'd been invited to say grace at the, the lunch that President Mandela was giving the Queen on his state visit. Um, so so uh, the vagrant in Leicester Square, Council of Christians and Jews, Roman Catholic nun and rabbi, uh, lunch with the Queen and President Mandela. And then in the afternoon, I went off to Wormwood Scrubs to visit a friend of mine um, who was doing, doing four years at the time. There aren't many people who have that variety of crossing social boundaries. I think it's very unusual in Britain today. Um, but it's not just um, a sort of clerical privilege, as it were. It's something of the experience of belonging to a church community as well. For example, if you go on the pilgrimage from St. Martin in the Fields to Canterbury on the late May bank holiday, people set off from the steps of St. Martin's late Friday morning, uh, and about 70 people go. And, and over the weekend, people join, so that by the time we all get to Canterbury on Monday afternoon, we've grown to about 140 people. So it's a really interesting and lovely event. The first year that I did it, I I've only walked the whole thing once, but the first, I, I, I always walk one day of it. And the first year, I was walking through the fields in Kent, talking to two people, both of whom were dressed in blue jeans and T-shirt. And it took me about an hour you might say, well, you're not very perceptive. But it took me about an hour to realise one was a professor at University College and the other was going back on the streets that night and this was his holiday for the year. Um, it had been a very intelligent conversation both ways and you know, the three of us had enjoyed each other's com conversation. But actually the barriers drop in that sort of setting. Sleeping rough on church hall or village hall floors, travelling light without the usual things that distinguish us one from another. Um, actually, in that context of travelling light on a pilgrimage, an extraordinary community emerges over the weekend in which you really do begin to discover uh, what matters or, or, or actually come to church. I think most churches, but certainly St. Martin's 
uh, pretty much any Sunday, uh, and you'll find that there is an extraordinarily diverse community of people gathered there. Takes a bit of getting to know, takes a bit of time to, to get underneath it and to really meet it, but it's there. Or, or by extension, um, then um, uh, uh, by extension, uh, the uh, BBC Christmas Appeal, um, which is uh, being broadcast, it's been broadcast every year for, since 1927, uh, in which last year more than 7,000 listeners um, uh, gave £486,000 to St Martin in the Fields for work with the needy across the country as well as uh, with homeless people um, in, in our centre. Uh, it is an extraordinary thing to, to have that experience of people recognising their neighbours uh, and of giving to them. I, I was very struck recently by a verse from Luke's Gospel in which Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. Charity, benefactors, are really important parts of the way our city works. And I am enormously grateful for the way in which people do give to charity. It's what makes St. Martin's work. Uh, I am the vicar of an organization that wouldn't work without that sort of charitable giving. Um, and benefactors are people that we're grateful for, the benefactors of this place, the benefactors of this city. Uh, and yet somehow that process of charity doesn't, um, uh, doesn't deal with the power relationships of the city. In, in an adequate way. It seems to me that what Jesus is offering in that image of the kingdom of God is something in which service and community go hand in hand, where people don't uh, stand on their own ground, but actually take the trouble to meet others on their ground and to get underneath the power relationships by offering something that's of real service. Uh, it's a vision of the kingdom of God uh, which uh, does address the power relationships between us. And the kingdom of God is a community in which we deal with our neighbor face to face and move beyond that sideways look at each other, which is uncertain and shifty and much more typical of the way we currently look at poverty in London. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.